Who has time for patience? We do rapid fire on the traffic light button, hoping it will speed up. We swap lanes in the traffic to squeeze just a car length ahead. We do summer schools and winter schools to get out into the workforce a whole six months early. We watch our lectures at one and a half speed. We want faster and faster internet. We buy more takeaway, more pre-made meals, because frankly, who's got time to wait? As tech speeds up and standards of living rise, we cram more and more into our lives because we can, and patience becomes a harder and harder virtue to cultivate. There's a Moroccan saying I came across, at the gate of patience, there is no crowding. Well, I think the crowd is ever thinning at the patience gate. Yet waiting patiently is a key characteristic of those who follow Jesus, because we understand the age in which we live. As you can see in your outline on page 31, we understand that we live in the overlap of the ages between Jesus' ascension as the risen King and his return in final triumph and glory. Whilst Jesus has established his kingdom in his death, resurrection and ascension, and we have the first taste of that kingdom in our lives now, we're still waiting for that day when the kingdom of God will come in all its fullness. You can see on your page the summary statement I shared yesterday about the nature of the church. We are an eschatological outpost of Jesus' disciples, living out the vision and values of his coming kingdom in the power of his spirit. But I want to add an important line, which you might like to write in, while we wait for his return. Today we're going to think about what it means to be a kingdom community who are waiting for Jesus' return. But before we launch into that, it helps if we can distinguish what fruits of the kingdom we already enjoy now in the overlap of the ages and what we will experience when Jesus returns. This is very significant because as followers of Jesus, we make our own lives significantly harder when we either undervalue what Jesus has already secured for us in the present or when we overclaim things that are not promised until Jesus returns. The first problem, undervaluing what Jesus has already secured for us, is what theologians call an under-realized eschatology. You've not grabbed hold of what Jesus has already won for you. The second problem, where we overclaim things that Jesus won't bring until he returns, is an over-realized eschatology. Both can lead to significant disappointment in the Christian life, because either you don't realise what's already yours in Jesus now, or you're expecting things now that Jesus has promised for when he returns. So we need to calibrate our expectations of both now and the future according to what God has actually revealed in the Christian Bible for his kingdom people. So we're going to map this out a little bit at the table at the bottom of your page using the three categories we introduced in the first talk of how God establishes his kingdom by winning a victory for his people, by establishing justice among his people and by granting an inheritance to his people. 
So in terms of victory, and you might like to put these into the table, the New Testament tells us that Jesus has already defeated the devil at the cross, from Hebrews 2. He's already freed us from sin's mastery, Romans 6. And he's granted us new resurrection life already in Colossians 2. But it's only when Jesus returns that the devil will finally be destroyed, Revelation 20. Only then will sin finally be no more, 1 John 3. And death will finally be overcome as we are given resurrection bodies, 1 Corinthians 15. What does that mean then for living in the now but the not yet of God's kingdom? Well, it means our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, as 1 Peter 5 tells us, but that if we resist him standing firm in the faith, we know he will flee from us, James 4. It's true that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil. But if we stand firm in faith, in the Lord's power, we will remain standing, Ephesians 6. It means, I know that I won't be entirely free of sin until Jesus returns, 1 John 1. But it also means that I don't let sin rule in my body, Romans 6. But instead, I put it to death in the power of God's Spirit within me, Romans 8. And my union with Jesus in his resurrection means I am a new creation now. The old has gone and behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5. But it also means I'm longing for the moment when this mortal body is swallowed up and replaced by a glorious, immortal, imperishable body like Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5. Well, what about justice? As we saw in talk two, now in the overlap, Jesus has already borne the guilt and penalty of our sin in his death. And he's been vindicated as righteous by his resurrection. But as we saw in talk three, when we looked at kingdom judgment, within those who claim to be God's people, there are both weeds and wheat. Moreover, within the world, the righteous in Christ are still persecuted and the wicked get away with it. That's to be expected, living in the overlap. It's not until Jesus returns that he promises to separate the sheep from the goats, as we saw in Matthew 25, and to call every person to account before him living and dead, Acts 10. That's when final justice will be served. So what does that mean for us now? Well, we rejoice in the forgiveness that Jesus has secured for us. Since we've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we're no longer burden ourselves with the guilt and the shame of the sins we've done. Since we know that Jesus died to make us clean and holy and without blame before God. We seek to be the holy and righteous people God has created us to be in Jesus. We seek to be worshipful image bearers, embracing God's word and way. And when we see sin in ourselves or in our fellow disciples, we take it seriously because we know that we have a judge in heaven who shows no partiality, but who's rich in mercy and grace to all who turn to him. Well, that's victory and justice. What about inheritance? Talk two, we saw that Jesus himself is our primary inheritance. And now in the overlap, we are already united with him. We enjoy the first fruits of that union now. 
but the full harvest of that union is still to come when Jesus returns. So as we saw in talk two, we've been raised spiritually now, but our physical resurrection is still to come. We've been seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms in terms of our place and status in God's plan from Ephesians 2, but it's only if we endure until he returns that we will finally reign with him, 2 Timothy 2. Jesus has made us into his sisters and brothers so that we're now co-heirs with him of the kingdom, Romans 8. We're heirs now, we're children of God set to inherit the kingdom. When Jesus returns, we'll be enjoying that inheritance, living in the kingdom in all its fullness. So what does that mean for us now? Well, because God has begun this good work in us, we're confident that he'll see it through to completion, Philippians 1. If God has given us so much in Jesus already, we know he will see it through, Romans 5, Romans 8. Moreover, we know that the spirit who already lives in us is God's deposit, his guarantee of the full inheritance still to come, Ephesians 1. So that's been a lot of information in a short span of time. We've scoped out sort of the boundaries of the now but not yetness of the kingdom. What we're going to do now is explore a few specific questions. On the next page, first of all, waiting for the king. When will Jesus return? There are some very clear messages about this in the Christian New Testament. First, he is ready. In Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. And in 1 Peter 4, we're told that Jesus stands ready to judge the living and the dead. He's ready and he's waiting. In 2 Peter 3, Peter notes that in this overlap of the ages, people will make fun of Jesus' slowness in returning. But Peter's counter in verse 9 is that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The only reason the New Testament gives for Jesus not coming back already is his patience with humanity. He doesn't want anyone to come on the wrong side of his judgment. And so he's giving everyone time to repent and believe. Now that does give a certain clarity to the importance of proclaiming the gospel message in this overlap time, doesn't it? The gospel and giving people an opportunity to respond to it, that is the only reason that there is a today or a tomorrow before Jesus returns. And we'll come back to that later. So Jesus is ready to return and in patience he's waiting Yet exactly when will he return? Well, no one knows the day or the hour. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that just no one knows that time for Jesus' return except the Father. Even Jesus, the King in God's kingdom, doesn't know the specific day or time of his return. Now, here's a question for you to discuss with those around. If Jesus is God, then how come he doesn't know the time set for his own return? Have a chat 
about that together with those around you or jump on your faculty Zoom. I'll be back in three minutes. Jesus is and was fully God, but he was also fully human. When God the Eternal Son took on human flesh as the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, he took on the limitations of a human mind. So Jesus only knew what God the Father enabled him to learn or revealed to him. It's the mystery of the Incarnation. You might like to ask questions about that in question time. Okay, so we're not told a specific day or time for Jesus' return, but are there indicators, signposts, that tell us whether the time is close? Well, the answer is yes. The Bible does give a bit of a more specific timeline. 
Matthew, Mark and Luke all record a particular conversation that Jesus had with his disciples where they were very concerned with this question, except that it was wrapped up with a few other questions as well. If you look at the conversation as recorded in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has just announced that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. You might like to turn it up in your Bible to Matthew 24. The disciples respond in verse 3, which I've printed out for you on page 32. While Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples have pulled together three things into one question. When will the temple be destroyed? What's the sign of your coming, your enthronement as king, or your coming on the clouds of heaven to your heavenly father in the style of Daniel 7? And what's the sign of the end of the age? They've put all of those together. Now, it seems likely to me that the disciples figured all those things would happen at the same time. Judgment on God's unfaithful people in Jerusalem, the coming of the Son of Man and the beginning of the new age of the kingdom. It makes sense that those would all happen at once. But Jesus' answer teases them apart. First of all, in verses 4 to 26 of the chapter, Jesus identifies the false signs, the things that are not particular signs of the end, but part and parcel of living in the overlap of the ages. You can see in verses 4 to 8, Jesus lists the appearance of false Christs who lead people astray, wars between nations, famines and earthquakes. In verse 6, Jesus says, we're not to be alarmed about such things. Such things, he says, must happen, but the end is still to come. Similarly, in verses 9 to 14, we should expect persecution of Christians, people falling away from the faith, and the gospel being preached throughout the whole world. These are not themselves the particular sign of the end, just characteristic of life waiting for the end. Even the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, as terrible as Jesus makes clear it will be, in verses 5 to 25, 15 to 25, is not the end or the sign of the end. So in verse 23, Jesus says that if at that time someone says, here is the Christ, don't believe it. Even the destruction of Jerusalem is not the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. Instead, in verse 27 to 35, Jesus says that his coming will be completely and unambiguously obvious. Verse 27, he says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There'll be no confusion, no denying it, when the Son of Man arrives. Verse 30, All the nations of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So Jesus doesn't give us a timeline for his return. So much more, he tries to disavow us of misreading events as signs of his arrival. He doesn't give us a timeline, but he does give us comfort. Wars, persecution, coronavirus, Christians falling away, they're all to be expected. And he does give us a game plan. Those who stand firm in faith to the end will be saved and the gospel is to be preached to all the nations.
But we're not just statically waiting for our King Jesus to return. While we wait, we're actively following him. And I want to highlight two ways that we follow him, which are there on your outline, page 33. First of all, we follow Jesus through suffering and to glory. I've always been struck by the message of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, verse 22. If you read through Luke's account in chapters 13 and 14, he records Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel of Jesus in Antioch, then in Iconium, and then in Lystra. Now, in each of those places, Paul and Barnabas get chased out of the city for this message that they're speaking. In fact, in Lystra, Paul is pelted with stones for preaching about Jesus. He's dragged out of the city and left for dead. But in each place, despite the persecution, people repented and believed in Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas decide to go back through those same places to encourage and strengthen these new disciples in the faith. And what was their message on their return tour? Well, Luke records it for us. It's the second passage on page 33. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The road to the kingdom of God is not easy. In fact, it will involve many hardships. It's through suffering that we come finally to glory. And as you can tell from what happened to Paul and Barnabas, the particular suffering that they had in mind was the suffering that comes from being a follower of Jesus. It may not have been an exciting truth for these new Christians to hear. They were probably surprised, frankly, to see Paul and Barnabas back in their towns, given what had happened last time. But Paul and Barnabas educated their expectations. It's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? If God's in charge and Jesus is reigning as the ascended king, why is suffering and opposition still expected for Jesus' followers? Well, I think there's two reasons. First of all, because the world is still under the grip of sin. In John 3, 19 to 20, Jesus speaks about the coming, sorry, John speaks about the coming of Jesus into the world, and he does it in this way. He says, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. When sin grips our heart, we don't want to come to Jesus. We want nothing to do with him and we will do whatever we can to suppress or oppose his good news gospel message. Because coming to him exposes our own sin. It exposes our opposition to the one true living God. And so elsewhere, Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. That's the first reason Christians are persecuted. Because the world is still in sin's grip. Second reason there is suffering is that God uses the suffering to grow us to become more like himself. 
Do you think that sounds a bit harsh? It was true even for Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8, and that he was made perfect or complete through suffering, Hebrews 2 verse 10. Suffering in itself is not a good thing. That's why when the kingdom comes in its fullness, there'll be no more suffering. But in his love and power, God uses the suffering to bring about a good outcome that we grow to become more like his son, Jesus. Now, the prospect of having to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God is not a happy one, even knowing that God is using it to conform us to be more like Jesus. Jesus himself knew that it wasn't really an attractive option. Have a look at Luke chapter 9, verses 22 to 26 at the top of the page. And Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It hardly sounds like an attractive option. To take up one's cross was to be marched on the way to your death. Jesus' disciples are to take up their cross daily and follow him because that indeed was the path that Jesus was taking. So Jesus explains the serious choice that we have in front of us. Verse 24. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. We can run away from the hardship that comes from following Jesus. We can try to save our life, even gain the whole world, because we're not willing to deny ourselves. But in the end, we'll lose our very self. We'll face the just judgment of God for rejecting his king, for rejecting his gospel, for rejecting his salvation. The only other option, the only way to save your life is to give it up and follow the suffering king. But on the other end of that suffering is the promise of glory in the coming kingdom. Look how Jesus finishes in verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. This is the kingdom path, through suffering to glory. It's the path trod by Jesus. It's the path of each of his disciples. You can see how Paul expresses it there in Romans 8, 16 and 17. We are God's children, he says, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That's the first way we follow Jesus, through suffering to glory. A second way we follow Jesus, which is particularly relevant to living in the overlap of the ages, is by submission to worldly authorities. This is an area where, in general, our thinking today as Christians is pretty weak. 
So it's worth pointing out to you some key passages. In Mark 12, the Jewish religious leaders asked Jesus whether it's right to pay taxes to Caesar. And Jesus' answer is famous. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. It's a clever answer. What, after all, belongs to God? Answer? Everything. Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yet even though it all belongs to God, we're to give to Caesar what Caesar demands. Within God's rule over all the earth, we're still to submit to lesser earthly authorities. Paul in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter 2 fill out this picture for us. Paul tells us that all human authorities exist under the authority of God, which means they have a particular role to fulfil in this present age. As God's servants, they're to punish wrongdoing and commend those who do right. That's why Christians who know that Jesus is the real king still submit to those earthly authorities and pay their taxes because God has put those authorities in place. And because they are God's servants, they need to be funded to do their work. However, that doesn't mean that governments will always do what's right. Godly government would support the church's attempt to spread the gospel because that's certainly a good thing to do in this current age. Godly government wouldn't try to be the church or to force people to believe in Jesus, but it would create the conditions in which the church would get on unhindered in Jesus' mission. But we know that there are times when worldly authorities expressly oppose what God wants us to do. When that happens, then we know who the ultimate authority is and we behave accordingly. You can see an example of that in Acts chapter 4 on your page, where the religious authorities ordered the apostles to stop proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Peter and John's response is that, look, ultimately we live in the sight of God and it wouldn't be right to obey you but disobey God who's told us to testify about Jesus. So if that means that we have to suffer at the hands of ungodly government, then so be it. But that highlights another fact about government and worldly authorities. In Revelation chapters 12 to 19, in an extended part of that vision, Jesus shows John part of what life will look like now in the overlap of the ages. And it's apparent there that in response to Jesus' present rule as king, there's a hardening of opposition to Jesus' reign amongst worldly authorities, which is then, in this vision, taken out against Christians. Jesus' establishment of the kingdom in his death, resurrection and ascension provokes, as it were, a desperate last-chance reaction from the worldly authorities who now know that their fate is sealed. And in the hardness of their hearts, they take it out against Jesus' people, even though the final outcome of their destruction and the vindication of Jesus' followers is assured. So what we have is that the New Testament tells us two truths about worldly government in this present age. 
that government does have a place under Jesus the King to execute judgment in the world, but that governments will often rebel against that limitation opposed upon them. Oliver O'Donovan summarises it like this in the quotation there on your page. He says, it was impossible, sorry, it was possible for the apostolic church to look at the relation of church and secular government from one of two angles. On the one hand, government could be seen as thrust back by Christ's victory to the margins, there to be reauthorised to perform a single function of which the world outside the church stood in need for the time being, namely the act of judgment, punishing wrongdoing and commending the good. On the other hand, it could be seen as goaded by Christ's victory to a last desperate assertion of itself, momentarily overwhelming the church's solidarity in an alternative, massively smothering solidarity of refusal. Either way, he says, the victory of Christ was the key to the relation. The messianic age was to be the age of ultimate choices and conflicts, in which the pluriform structures of political mediation would be propelled to a simple decision between two governments, the creative government of the word of God and the predatory self-destructive government of human self-rule. In this age, that decision must underlie all other decisions. So here's another little opportunity for a chat with those around you. How do you see the present government in Australia either supporting the church's mission or standing against it? Now, don't just fix on one issue. Try and see if you can pick out different ways the government is responding positively or negatively to Jesus' rule as king. You've got three minutes to chat about it together. Be nice.
Again, you might like to pick up some of those things with me in question time after this session. So as well as following the king while we wait for his return, we also proclaim the king. Jesus came with a message. Repent and believe the good news, for the kingdom of God is at hand. As you can see in the diagram at the bottom of page 34, he entrusted that message to the apostles, his authoritative chosen eyewitnesses. Their authoritative apostolic testimony has been recorded for us in the Christian Bible. Our task, as you can see there in the diagram, is to call the world's attention to the apostles' authoritative eyewitness testimony as recorded in the Bible. Should we be concerned then about the passing on of this message of the kingdom from Jesus? Well, given the preciousness of the kingdom and given the priority of the kingdom, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and passing on Jesus' call to repent and believe is frankly a no-brainer. Here's how Paul summarised the situation in Romans chapter 10. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and he is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the wonderful good news of the gospel. Salvation, life in the kingdom of God is available to all, the whole world over since Jesus is king over all. But Paul then identifies the challenge of having a global gospel. Verse 14, But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? If you want to get a sense of the challenge Paul is talking about here, I'd encourage you to spend some time on joshuaproject.net. The Joshua Project tries to track gospel needs around the world. One set of groups they track are called frontier people groups. A frontier people group is one where less than 0.1% of the population calls themselves Christian of any sort and where there is no evidence of a self-sustaining gospel movement. If you have both those conditions, they classify you as a frontier people group. These frontier people groups are reliant on Christian help coming from outside to make any gospel headway in proclaiming the kingdom. Now, some frontier people groups are large, some are quite small. There are 31 frontier people groups around the world which have more than 10 million people in each of them. Here's a map showing you where they are. These people groups have a combined population of 907 million. And that's just the groups with more than 10 million people in them. If you include the rest of the frontier people groups, the map looks like this. The total number of people living in these frontier people groups around the world right now, 1.9 billion. That's one in four people in the world who live in a place or a culture 
with very little chance of hearing the gospel from another person. How are they able to hear without someone to proclaim him? It's not just overseas. There are significant pockets of unreached people in Australia, including here in Sydney, including many cultures that don't have a self-sustaining evangelistic movement. It's a numbingly sad situation. Do you ever walk around your local shops or catch public transport and wonder how many people here know Jesus the King? How many here have ever really heard the gospel about him? I know I do. We know Jesus' reaction when faced with that reality. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers into his harvest field. We have to send out more gospel workers, people who will give up other things in order to do this thing, proclaim the king. That is God's strategy. Jesus needs more workers. The world needs more workers. Our campuses need more gospel workers. We need more ministry trainees, lots more at Sydney Uni. We need more senior staff for Sydney Uni, as well as around the world. We need more church planters. We need more youth pastors. We need chaplains who will proclaim King Jesus in retirement villages and prisons and hospitals and schools. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Could you do it? Could you give up your job, your profession, and give yourself to gospel work? Are you a suitable person for it? You'd need to not be a new believer. You'd need to have a certain amount of Christian maturity to be walking in godliness. You'd need to be able to teach others faithfully about Jesus. Could you do it? Maybe you should pray about that and talk to a mature Christian friend to see what they think. But the trickier question is not could you, but will you? Will you make a commitment to pursue becoming a gospel worker? In the EU, we call this the send me commitment. It goes like this. Under God, I commit myself to being a gospel worker in God's global harvest field. Now, the first two words are important. It's under God. God might have other plans for you. God might reveal that you're not a suitable person for it. But it's a commitment not just to think about it, but to actively pursue it. And here's an exciting thing. One of the many things that God has been doing amongst us is that each year we have a number of people at annual conference who make that commitment, who say, yes, King Jesus, send me. Isn't that exciting and humbling? So if you've heard all we've been saying this week about the preciousness and priority of the kingdom, of embracing kingdom reversal and giving up things to meet others in their need, you might be ready to make the send me commitment to give yourself to proclaiming the king. If that's you, then look for the send me link in your daily Ancon email and that will take you through to where you can register that you've made that commitment. 
So as we wait for the return of Jesus, our King, we follow him and we proclaim him. And if you turn to page 35, you can see that we wait with the presence of the King. At the very end of Matthew's Gospel, just before he ascends out of their sight, Jesus comforts his disciples with these words. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The prospect of going forward as Jesus' kingdom people without him was probably not an attractive option for the disciples. Indeed, given the challenge of following Jesus through suffering, Jesus' words here are very comforting. We're not alone. King Jesus is with us. He's with you always to the very end. That's really wonderful news. But how is he with us? How is Jesus with them? He was about to ascend to heaven, which is where he still is in his resurrected flesh and blood body. So how is he with us? Well, in two ways. First, though he is not physically present, Jesus is relationally and spiritually near. I'm thinking of those verses from Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. There is not a moment in life, no matter how dark, when God is not with you as Father, Son and Spirit. Jesus always hears you. There is no millisecond delay. There's no dodgy connection or distraction. He hears and he's near. And the second profound way he's with us is even better than his physical presence, if that were an option for us. It's by his spirit, which he's poured out from his Father into our hearts, which has given us new birth and who is the guarantee of our inheritance in the kingdom. And what that means is that living now and waiting for Jesus' return and his kingdom to come, that is not beyond any of us who've come to Jesus in faith because he's poured out his spirit into you. Which brings us back to waiting for the king. In light of all that we've looked at, not just in this talk, but across all four talks, how do we wait? If I was going to sum it up, I'd say we wait in alert readiness with thankfulness. Alert readiness with thankfulness. We saw earlier that no one knows the precise time Jesus will return. Jesus tells us what to do with that fact from Matthew chapter 25. He says, therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. This is why you are to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be alert and ready. Jesus makes the same point over and over again. It's there in a whole series of parables in Matthew chapters 25 and 24. His point is simple. Be prepared for my return at any moment. And that means getting on and living as my kingdom people. Instead of falling asleep, instead of giving up or deciding to do your own thing, we remain primed 
at the task of living out the vision and values of the coming kingdom in the power of his spirit while we wait for his return. And we do so with a sense of thankfulness. We take following Jesus in the overlap of these ages seriously. In the power of his spirit, we seek to be worshipful image bearers. We listen to his word and his way, but we do so with thankful hearts because we're receiving something so precious, so permanent, the unshakable kingdom of God. Come, Lord Jesus, come.